everyone and welcome back to the Artistic Futures podcast. My name is Marie and in this series I will be meeting some extraordinary people who work in music and opera and who are keen to share their passion with the next generation. From performers to conductors, directors to choreographers, you will get an insight into how a range of artists built on their career, turning what they enjoyed doing and were good at into a profession. Again, it will be full of useful tips and advice for those of you who would be tempted to give it a go. So, let's get started. In this episode, I met with bass baritone and director John Savornen. John was recently shortlisted for the Opera Award 2022 in the category Rising Talent, and he is currently working on the Opera North production of Ariadne auf Naxos by Richard Strauss. John is the founding artistic director of a Charles Court opera, which has been described as one of the leading and most versatile chamber opera and music theatre company in the UK. Over the last few months, John has been writing and directing an adaptation of Jana Czech's The Cunning Little Vixen for the Education Department at Opera North. His family show Mini Vixen will be touring across the north of England this winter. Thank you so much for being here today and for speaking to me as part of the Artistic Future podcast. You've done a lot of work with us over the years, uh, and I was wondering where your passion for opera came from. Uh, well, my uh, my family, my parents uh, initially were very passionate about theatre in general and were involved in a lot of amateur dramatics uh, companies in my hometown, which was Sheffield, and they included me in a, in some of those activities and were very keen for me to be part of as much as possible and and the bug really started at school where I was cast as a character in a play when I was sort of six or seven years old and mm-hmm. and enjoyed that and found a place where I felt quite welcomed really found a kind of a place for myself at primary school as I was a reasonably lonely child and and it actually it really really uh, helped with that you know, by the time I was a teenager, Monday night was tap dancing, Tuesday night was youth theatre, yeah. Thursday night was rehearsing for a big amateur company in Sheffield that did pantomimes, and, yeah. and on and on it went from there kind of thing. And, and my parents were particularly involved in a in a group that performed Gilbert and Sullivan operas. And at one stage, something called the Gilbert and Sullivan Festival, which was in Buxton, were starting to create a youth production where children could go and play characters and chorus in mm. in a production each summer. Me and a group of friends went along to audition for that and we were all included and we started doing that every summer and and that was kind of the routine. I mean, the short answer is I was particularly into uh, theatre as mm. a whole and yeah. musical theatre and then via a singing teacher who was very encouraging, a lovely lady called Barbara Lowe who lived in Derby, she suggested that I might like to think about classical singing and taking that a little bit more seriously. That's where it started. So when when did you start training as a as a classical singer? Well, I, tra- training it might be a bit of a loose okay. word, but <laughs> yeah. when I was uh, probably about... 15 was when I first had a very a sort of a singing lesson with Barbara who took things very seriously and mm-hmm. 
you know, for the for the age range, of course. Um, and she she was just very encouraging and introduced me to a lot of different kinds of song and German yeah. song, French song, and, and that kind of thing. And suggested that I, I, I apply to music college when the, when the time came around. Um, so it was her yeah. it was her connection to that really that that brought that together. And I only really started seeing lessons and and that kind of training after my voice had broken. I mean, I got yeah. to 15 and didn't even realise that that's what had happened <laughs> because my singing prior to that had been kind of, you know, glorified shouting but on pitch <laughs> um, and always using my chest rather than my mm-hmm. falsetto. So I, I wasn't really clear whether that had happened yet or not. And, of course, you know, she confirmed that it had and, mm-hmm. and started helping me work out what what a kind of trained sound would, would be like. Yeah. yeah. So you decided to go on to study at Music College of after that yeah um, where, where did you go where, and how did you choose where to go and what was the process like did well because I was only 17 when I was yeah. auditioning and my singing teacher had said you knew a teacher at Trinity College of Music go and have a consultation lesson with her which is just a way of meeting different teachers at different mm-hmm. music colleges and and just having a, a kind of no commitment on either side toe dip in the water and see whether something sits mm-hmm. and I went down and I saw this teacher and she said you know if you if you apply it's highly likely that we would take you which was obviously at that age I was just very excited by that yeah, yeah. Um, 17 is really young isn't it too? yeah and so I thought at the time well I've been to the building I like the building I, I like the people they clearly would like me to come so I didn't really think about looking any further than that and so I applied and and they they gave me a place and a scholarship and I said okay well that's what I'll do then and I hadn't hadn't even really joined the dots on whether or not I was saying to myself I'm going to be an opera singer I think I just thought I like performing Mm -hmm. and I, I could have gone to drama school or I could have gone to university and studied music academically mm-hmm. but music college seemed to offer a way of doing both of those things and getting to work out what that looked like later on mm-hmm. and it was only once I was there and, they, and you know they were putting on operas in the summer and, and so on that I was I, I found that that was the that's, thing that I wanted okay. to do yeah that's that's great do you feel that um, your time at music college prepared you well uh, for then embarking on a career as a not for a singer I think so. Um, it, it's um, it's interesting because music college. I think anyone would would say this is music college is basically a really good way of meeting people who are like minded, and also eventually meeting people through who work in the actual industry itself. Mm-hmm. So you find yourself, you know, because of the kind of teachers that come in and guest masterclass leaders and drama teachers and that kind of thing that they're able to give you a bit of a window into the outside world and find Mm -hmm. some kind of routine. So actually, my route with that was that I I was working with a repetiteur at Music College um, who knew Stuart Barker, who's the director of British Youth Opera. And Stuart, at the time, was staging some some small-scale productions of his own. I auditioned for that and, and ended up working with Stuart on that, which led to ultimately doing something with British Youth Opera during the summer and and the, and the ball started rolling from there. Yeah. I think that 
inevitably with all institutions, music colleges, universities, drama schools, that sort of thing, uh, there's often a bit of a disparity between that and real world. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so what, what, what was it like once you started being in the real world? And uh, how, how do you go about getting your first paid gig? And I, I was quite lucky in that I started to do some bits of paid work before I was leaving through some connections from actually when I was still a teenager and it was at that Gilbert and Sullivan Festival I, I went and, and joined the chorus there over the summers that kind of thing yeah, yeah. and I, I just happened to meet a few people who were looking to cast some things when I was leaving not some small-scale touring kind of shows mm-hmm. in some ways it kind of happened by accident One thing I would say is that with uh, British Youth Opera, what was useful there is that it was through them that I found my first agent. And they were then, of course, able to start the process of, of putting me up for auditions for for more kind of official uh, companies. And, you know, my first sort of higher level professional job was with uh, Mid Wales Opera. And that came through an, an audition that my agent had set up at that time. Ah, so, so yeah, you, you were lucky to get an agent quite early on, and that probably helped you then to get it, opportunities maybe quick, quicker than if you didn't. Do you uh, think, or? Yes, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, I think so. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you know, an agent's job is to do that legwork for mm. you and, and to be looking for the work while you're busy doing yeah. the work that you're currently doing and that's yeah. why they exist and it's why it works as a system but it's also not for everyone and there are lots of ways through a lot of the time people will go into one of the big festival opera choruses mm. and from their work their way up into being an understudy and then then they might find yeah. an agent that there way different routes. there are lots of different ways of doing it yeah. um, but that certainly was my route and it helped a lot having somebody advocate for me mm-hmm. Do you remember the first big opera role you you did and what it felt like? Um, what was the first big <laughs> one? That's the thing. Um, oh, they might have. Been. Yeah. Or maybe first memorable role. <laughs> I think probably it was singing Guglielmo in Cosi Fan Tutte on a tour around Ireland, which was a, you know it was a small show with six singers mm-hmm. and a, a string quartet and piano, but it was a real chance to you know get a sense of what it was like to travel around to be part of the real world if you like mm-hmm. and you know it, it shattered quite a lot of the rose tints on the spectacles because there was a lot of staying in dodgy B&Bs and <laughs> you know traveling in a minibus and all of those sort of things but it really gave you a sense of what that kind of job would be like yeah, yeah. you went on to uh, create your own opera company mm. uh, Charles Court Opera and also to direct opera I was wondering how all these things came about um well directing was something that i started doing while i was a teenager it was just me and a group of friends putting on semi-stage performances of things and then we ended up writing a musical that we booked a theater for and just put on for a few days and it was kind of a way of just kind of having fun really and while i was at music college i had a bit of an itch to do a little bit more of that got some friends together we did some opera scenes And then it was through that that I met David Eaton, who's now the musical director of my company and has been since the beginning. And he and I were working on one of those Stuart Barker small-scale shows uh, in this pub theatre. And I sat down with the the person who owned that afterwards and said, you know, did you ever think about having some lighter opera? Um, And she just said, yeah, sure, why not? And we booked in a week to do 
um, the Mikado, the Gilbert and Sullivan. Mm. We just got a bit of a bug for putting on our own work and, and making our own shows. Yeah. And I just kept doing that around the edges while I was singing in, in things and as that was progressing. And the good thing about that is that it was a sort of constant platform and still is for for myself and for anybody that's part of it to part of a production to be you know, in London or on tour cut, cutting their teeth and, and getting maybe seen by people or being able to invite people to see things. And it was at one of those productions where somebody said, oh, I gather that opera also looking for an understudy for one of their productions coming up. Do you want to be put forward? And that's how I first started working at Opera North was mm-hmm. was via that, and and then with the directing of that's that's been trickling alongside, I found that what's often happened is that if I've been in a situation where I've been singing somewhere, that sometimes we've had the conversation of, that I I also direct, and then that's led to, uh, for example, here it's led to things like making the Whistle Stop operas mm-hmm. or um, Trial by Jury a few years ago. Yeah on the main stage and there's been a kind of natural kind of snowballing organic effect with it yeah so it's been going up ticking along yeah the side, what, what, what you've been doing as a exactly and then and then it's sort of grown in terms of the kind of level of projects i've been able to work on which has been something i feel very lucky to have, have had the opportunity to, to do but i, I i've never made a, a very clear right i'm going to do this or this and it has to be one or the other and of course lots of people have said over the years you really ought to pick Um, but then I think as time goes on it it becomes clearer that that word that everyone always talks about which is Mm. portfolio career is actually something that feels more not only kind of necessary but also quite desirable I think yeah and I imagine I mean I, I don't know if you feel like that but I imagine as a singer it kind of influenced the way you direct and as a director because you know what it's like being a singer on stage that gives you yeah, like, an advantage all, as well. It, it all overlaps yeah. and yeah. and it's also about working with directors but having first-hand experience of what it's like to be directed yes. by someone yeah. and finding out their different methods and what impact it has on you personally. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, of course, it's knowing what, what it's like to be stood up there and and managing some of the issues and thought processes that might come up as a result of that. And it is useful, I think. I personally find it very useful to be able to read music and understand very clearly when we're working on something that will be that might be very difficult for the singer and therefore it's about helping them manage that rather than trying to push against that or, or think only about what the visual will look like. And I think it's, you know, it's healthy. You You would do this as a singer in any case, but... With as a director, it's I think it's very healthy to, to be aware that kind of your ego is the thing that needs to be outside the room as much as possible, and you're making something that is you're you're trying to help people achieve their best work. That's mainly your job, mm-hmm. and if you've managed to do that, then it will be a really entertaining piece of theatre. You can sh- try to shoehorn people into. Uh, what you imagine they should be doing till the cows come home but fundamentally they are who they are and that is what you should be celebrating brilliant you are at the moment part of the cast for Ariadne of Naxos at the far north I was wondering what the rehearsal process had been like so far and 
what, what you've been enjoying about it? It's been really, really great. It's been very physical because um, one of the roles I'm playing is one of the clowns, um, well, in our production, clowns, uh, Truffaldino, and there are there are four of them plus um, Zerbinetta, the sort of troop leader. And so there's a lot of throwing ourselves around on the floor and mm -hmm. dancing, and it's all very choreographed. Um, so it's been quite full on, but in a in a really brilliant way. Radula, the director, is fantastic. At, I mean, she said on the first day of rehearsal, this is a, a revival of a production we made in Gothenburg, but actually it's not at the same time because we're going to make something that works for the people that we have in the room. And that's really been what, mm. what, what it's felt like. It's a very visual production, great costumes. The, the scenery is, is huge and fantastic. Our costumes are all based on clowns from from a very specific film of the of the period that she's set it in and you know we all look wonderfully ridiculous um <laughs> and there's something about clowns that are so the, the whole point of clowning is that it that there's a there's a split second where you make a judgment about what you're going to do and and do a silly walk silly walk or roll around on the floor and that all those inhibitions need to be completely out of off the table so it's there's this kind of delicious marriage between planning and improvising mm. um which is really exciting to to play with and the other guys are so fantastic so it's um it's going to be really funny really uh, moving as well actually um and everybody's uh, really fantastic i can't wait what a crazy situation it's the strangest of all been working with us recently on uh, developing a new whistle-stop opera so there, there are shorter version of operas aimed at families mainly mm -hmm. so you've been adapting uh, the cunning little vixen for us i was wondering what attracted you to be involved in this kind of project i, I suppose this is linked with your passion for directing and writing new pieces as well um, but if you could tell us a bit more about that. yeah and I, i mean i think the main thing about this is that it, it's a project that has been in the works here for a number of years now uh, and the point of doing it is to put the art form before people who might not have considered watching it before or who are interested in taking their children to find out what opera might be about and see if it's something that they could be interested in. You get this extraordinary thing where the audience are, they have no preconceptions about how they should react to this. So if they've really enjoyed it then then that's genuine and it really reminds you that the purpose of theatre as a whole is to reach and touch and connect with with other people and I think that's the most exciting thing about it. It's always a challenge because 
in, in particularly in this case, you're taking a you know big long opera that's um, packed with all sorts of different storylines. In this case, all sorts of different animals cropping up. It's very Alice in Wonderland in that way, mm-hmm. um, and trying to find a way of condensing that into a half an hour piece, which only uses three performers, an accordionist, and a violinist. Yeah. And it's kind of you know the challenge of picking what bits of music and whether that's going to be something that will work with with a very young audience watching it that's very difficult sometimes kind of making that balance mm-hmm. um and so that the preparation around that takes a long time but is is obviously there are also no rules so if you decide oh this bit actually is a bit boring so i'm just going to take <laughs> that out you absolutely can yeah. um and reworking the story to be, in this case, some trying to touch on some really important current issues. So mm-hmm. because it's all about animals and nature, we've looked at ways of, of including a little bit of reference to issues around climate change and, and man's footprint on the world and how damaging that has been and needs to change. And mm-hmm. so the farmer in that goes through a kind of personal change in terms of his outlook of the world, which is... Is um, you know feels important to have included as part of it, and uh, it's yeah they just had a, their first performance last week and it's um, was received really well. There's nothing better than seeing a room full of kids yeah. um, laughing away at somebody dressed as a dog chasing a ball up the aisle and um, catching it and bring it bringing it back <laughs> to be thrown again. You know it's a really really important part of the work that I like that I like to do because it yeah. always reminds me that there's. There's a there's a very clear reason why we do what we do. For young people who might be thinking of training as, as a musician or as a director or people who want to embark in, on an artistic career, I was wondering if you might have a few pieces of advice. Oh, gosh, massive question. Yeah, it is a big question. Um, I would say... Gosh, what would I say? <laughs> go with your, I, I suppose I would say go with your, go with your gut, but also talk to as many people as you can and ask their advice and try and think smart as much as you can about why you're going to go and do something. I think also at the same time, when you're at a point of thinking, what am I going to do at university? I think it's quite important to go with your gut in that case and make sure that you're going to go somewhere where you're going to enjoy the time, you're going to be able to work hard and be happy doing it because ultimately if, you, if you're studying something that is the thing that you're interested in and that then when you come out the other side of that you you, you have a degree and you're ready to, to go and do that if that's the route that you choose to take, then ultimately where that happens kind of doesn't matter too much it has to be first and foremost about where you feel happiest going if you, if you feel like it's really important to work with a specific teacher or something like that sure maybe there's a postgraduate then you can go on to or whatever it might be but in the end the first thing is making sure that you've been able to really get the most out of that i would also say don't be afraid to really listen to your gut if it's saying i don't think this is the right decision for me or I'm wondering if I should be doing something slightly different like instead of singing maybe I should be playing piano or if instead of you know directing I should be designing or whatever it is and trying to listen to those instincts because 
it's very easy to get pulled into a position where you feel like I must stick to this course and that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has to be what's right for you and everybody is very, very different. I had a really weird car journey once with an, with an old man. It sounds so sort of fable-like this, but <laughs> he, to cut a long story short, he was just taking me to a station and he was the person who had to take me there. We were in the car 45 minutes, never met before. Mm-hmm. Just a nice guy in his 90s, you know? Yeah. And without kind of prompting anything, he told me this amazing story about his life where he was an immigrant, not speaking English, moving to America. And he then ultimately became professor of English at, I think, Oxford. And because of that, and because of the fact that that so much had had culminated in this big, like, progression for him, he convinced himself that he was doing the thing that he was meant to do. Hmm. Everyone liked him as a professor. He was a good teacher. The papers that he wrote, you know, that they have to do sometimes were great, that kind of thing. But his wife said to him, I don't think this is really what you want to do, but sure. And he got to about 40 and he, and he said, maybe it's not what I want to do and just made a change. Mm-hmm. He became a harpsichord maker and restorer. And he said almost overnight, he became the guy who whistled around the house and was really happy. And his wife yeah. said, yeah, I told you that you should have made a change. And that's what he did for the rest of his life and was spectacularly happy. And I think the thing is, is that in, a, in an industry like the arts, it's okay to think about changing course mm-hmm. if it will bring you more happiness. Yeah, and It takes a lot of courage as well. That's, that's a lot of courage because yeah. you often invest a lot of time and energy. So yeah. if those instincts come early and you're going, oh, I'm not sure actually... Or if you think it's not just fear and it's more just like, this isn't me, yeah. that's all right and you should try and do something about it is, is the advice I would give. Don't be, af- don't be afraid to follow your heart in that sense. I think that's brilliant advice. Thank you. I was wondering what for you is the most challenging aspect of, of your job <laughs> or your jobs? <laughs> Gosh, um, well, with singing, the most challenging thing is that it's it, no matter how much you want to intellectualize like character and learning languages and all those things, it is still fundamentally quite a physical thing and quite an athletic thing. Mm-hmm. And it is possible to you know, ruin your voice because you overuse it, get nodules, that kind of thing. It's possible to not be fit enough physically to be able to support the voice properly and use all of those sort of core muscles and things like that so the most challenging thing is like being quite disciplined about looking after your body and looking after your you know, your technique and things like that that and that that never leaves you because you as a body change your voice as it ages just the muscles themselves change Mm -hmm. and you're constantly playing this game of, oh, it feels different now. I need to do something slightly different and, you know, with how I use it or whatever. So that's always a, you know, not a challenge exactly, but just something to, that you're constantly managing. I suppose, I suppose the other thing is, um, in terms of directing, it's the most challenging thing is, is thinking in a creative way and in terms of the pre-planning of, of, of making a, production mm-hmm. I think you learn quite quickly that more heads are better than one and that can include people who are in the rehearsal room as well the mm-hmm. performers themselves because you can have all the ideas in the world uh, but in the end I always find I'm a much better creative person if I'm 
saying those things out loud and discussing them with other people. Yeah. Um, but sometimes that's not possible in the early stages and you're having to dig deep and uh, and come up with ideas come up, come up with the come up with the ideas that are <laughs> yeah. right for the for the piece yeah, as yeah. well um and not just any old ideas as well mm-hmm. anybody could say well i'm going to set ariadne of naxos on the moon great but actually there's not really any reason to do that so it's about making smart decisions in mm-hmm. that respect yeah. um but you know it's all worth it because in the end it's somebody said this on, on an in an oscar speech or something the other day <laughs> that what's the point of What's the point of theatre? And it is it's, it's something about connecting people and giving people the chance to look at other people on stage and sort of compare themselves to that person and make their own judgments about what they think that whole situation that they're watching is about, but without any of the pressure of the actual real world on their shoulders. Mm-hmm. So it's an incredibly inspiring thing to be able to be part of of making for people to be able to come and experience and maybe leave feeling inspired or th- thinking about something they hadn't thought about before. It's why theatre has existed for over thousands of years. It's yeah. it's just a, a seemingly a really important part of our sort of social fabric, if you like. Yeah, that was actually going to be my last question. <laughs> what do you love the most about what you do? But maybe that's the answer. I think that that's all, all it's about, really. Yeah. It's easy to forget that it's a real privilege to be able to 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 make something or stand up in front of people and help them experience something that they really want to that they're really open to experiencing. They've come to go, in a sense, not just entertain me, but touch me, help, give me something to come away with, mm-hmm. and um, you know that's that's the best bit for sure. You've been listening to the Artistic Futures podcast with bass baritone and director John Savonen. If you have any burning question for a future guests or would like to suggest people you would like to meet, please email education at opfarnorth.co.uk. You can also find us on Twitter, search Opfarnorth Education. See you next time. Mm-hmm.